0: Everybody. Welcome back to my channel. Thanks so much for tuning in. If you're new here, welcome. If you've been here before, I really appreciate you coming back and taking another look and coming to hang out with me again. I did a post last week, and again, I'm so sorry that recently I've been a little spotty, but as I was talking about in my last video, I'm currently going through IVF treatments. And as beautiful of a process and blah, blah, blah as it is, it is a freaking nightmare, okay? I'm getting four shots into my stomach every single day. It's a lot. It's a lot. So it's hard to take a job that I'm working 60 hours a week and do the IVF treatment where I'm getting four shots a day. I'm going out of my mind. I'm getting an egg retrieval, which is pretty much a surgery and then still have time to record. I still have time to do the research and I've had this research done for a little while now, but it's just making the actual recording is where I kind of get tripped up a little bit. Like right now when I'm recording, it's one o'clock in the morning and I'm just starting. I'm gonna be doing this until like three, four o'clock in the morning. And that's just fine with me, okay? I, I love recording, I have fun with it. What I really don't love so much is getting ready for recording because, like, I don't really do makeup and I don't look like this on a regular basis. Like, I throw some eyeliner on and I'm out the door. Like, I don't do cover-up, I don't do lip gloss, none of that stuff is, like, part of my daily routine, especially on the weekends. You would be hard-pressed to find me with a drop of anything on my face over the weekend. I don't do anything. I'm a lazy slug. I'm an old person. I lay in my bed or on my couch watching Netflix or Hulu, and that's about that. So yeah, um, thank you for hanging in there with me and understanding why my posting has been a little bit sporadic. I'm working on it. I'm doing everything I can to make this more consistent, make sure that I get a video uploaded every single week. If by the time I put this video out, I have a compilation of the videos that I've been taking where I've been getting the injections and everything, I could compile it into like a one minute thing. So you could just fast forward through if you're not interested, but If you are interested, I'll probably put it right after this, I'll like, insert it into the video. I recorded it all, but I haven't put it all together yet, so I don't even know how that's gonna come out. I just know that I recorded it as I was doing it. And I was a mess. Like, I was crying every time I got the shot, it was painful, it was emotional, the whole thing was just bonkers, but I don't really have any updates as far as how it's going. I know I got a lot of eggs, it was a good procedure, everything went well, I just don't know how it's gonna go. Enough time hasn't passed, so like, I don't know if I'm gonna get anything viable out of it, so let's hope. Uh, Trust me, you guys will be coming along. If I get pregnant, God willing, if I get pregnant, you guys will be coming along for the entire ride. You'll learn everything along with me. So, yeah, that's that's why I've been a little, you know, all over the place. I haven't recorded every single week, and I've really been trying to, but it's just, it's difficult. I don't know how many true crime junkies are watching my channel, but if you are a true crime junkie and you watch a lot of YouTube people, you definitely know who Sherilyn Dale is and I love this girl. I'm talking like I watch every single thing she makes. I've watched her since she first came out. Like she had barely any followers, and I've been watching her ever since then. I love this girl. So back in November, I had written her an email telling her like, listen, I am having a little bit of trouble coming and like getting followers. I've been putting videos up for a while, and it just feels like There's some girls that come on and they make five videos and they have 200,000 followers. I've been at this for a year and I'm still below 2,000. It's a little rough. Do you have any suggestions? Also, I had spoken to you a while back about the case with my best friend and how he was killed and there's never been any justice and nobody's ever spoken about it. So um, what do you think about maybe putting that on your channel? Because she has hundreds of thousands of viewers. And she actually responded. She was, like, so helpful. She, she talked about, like, things on my channel, how, like, my background, everything. She was, she was great. So, we might be getting a shout-out from her, or maybe, possibly, she might be talking about my best friend's case, which would be absolutely amazing, because nobody ever has, and the more light that I can have shed on the story, the better, so... Let's keep our fingers crossed. Okay, so, (laughs) sorry, I know a lot of people complain about, like, how much time I gab at the beginning of the video, and it's like, oh, too much love and too much... Backstory get to the story. I really apologize if this isn't something that you enjoy hearing about. I'm I'm really sorry Okay, but I just know that there's people out there that are interested in hearing this stuff So I want to share so anyways Let's go ahead and get to this week's gangster because this is actually a really interesting one I know that this one was recommended to me i'm gonna go look and find to see if i can find out who it was that referred me i did look i couldn't find it but i think if i look harder i can find it but if i do find it i'll put their username in the description of this video was I really appreciate the suggestion because anytime somebody suggests something to me it really helps because sometimes I feel like I'm like oh my god what if I run out of people like there's a million serial killers out there for like you know true crime people to cover there's not so many like mobsters and gangster type people and of the ones that are out there not all of them have a lot of information so it's not exactly easy to make videos about them So if you know of somebody that has a lot of content out there about them and you want to see me do a video, definitely drop it in a comment as a suggestion. I will take it, I will look into it, and if there's enough out there for me to make a video, I will do it, and I'll mention you in the video most likely. This is a bad example because I don't remember the person who gave it to me this week. But I'm gonna go look, and I'll put their username in the description, so go check the description. If I don't, like, make a blurb that makes this up, (laughs) check the description. So, this week's gangster is Raymond L.S. Patriarca. He was born on March 17th, 1908, in Worcester, Massachusetts. His father, who was an Italian immigrant from the village of Arce Lazio, and Mary Jane de Nubile. His mom was born in 1880 and his dad was born in 1887, which is very strange because you never see An older woman marrying a younger man. Like, she is older than him by seven years. Like, he got himself a cougar, okay? Like, go Eleutario. And both of them immigrated to America from Italy. His parents got married in 1903 and they were each other's first marriages. The couple had five children together. They had Elizabeth in 1905, they had Adelina, Who I've also seen called Gertrude, so maybe that's her middle name. I don't know why I've seen her name different things, but Gertrude and Adelina are the same person and she was born in 1906. Grace was born in 1907. Raymond was born in 1908. And Joseph was born in 1910. Joseph is the only one out of the entire family that was born in Rhode Island. And all of the rest of the siblings were born in Massachusetts. So they lived in Massachusetts when they had the first four kids. Then they moved to Rhode Island and that's where the youngest child Joseph was born. His father, Eliutario, was a wine clerk in a hotel. Eliutario registered for the draft for World War I on September 12th. 1918 and when he registered for the draft he was actually a self-employed saloon keeper at the time so being self-employed I'm pretty sure that means that he owns the saloon which is pretty cool like it's very rare to see business ownership at this time unless it's like you know a little stand on the side of the road so I could, I'd be willing to bet that this family had some money. Ilya Uterio died on February 17th, 1925 in Providence, Rhode Island at 48 years old, which is so young. Like, that's a baby. He was buried at the Gates of Heaven Cemetery in East Providence, Rhode Island. Keep that cemetery in mind because you're going to be hearing it a lot in this episode. Everybody this man ever met is born is buried at the Gates of Heaven Cemetery in East Providence, Rhode Island. I'm assuming this is a really big cemetery. I want I'm going to put a picture up of it on here because it has to be a gigantic cemetery. Nothing else would make sense because there's so many people buried there. And you don't see a whole bunch of people being buried at a specific cemetery if it's like you know, some cemetery outside of a church. Like, this is a decent-sized cemetery. That means that when his father died, Raymond was only 17 years old, which is, like, super sad. I think it's, it's so sad to lose a parent at a young age. I don't really see anywhere anything about the relationship that Raymond had with his father, but considering he went off to war in 1918, probably spent at least three years at war. So he came back in 1921 and then he died in 1925. I would imagine they don't have the best relationship because they really didn't get that much time to spend it with each other. But at the end of the day, that's his father and it's heartbreaking that his father died when he was only 17. Like My mom died when I was 28 and I was like, this is not okay. I'm not even 30. I am not ready to not have a mother. Like, I, I can't survive in this world without a mom. I'm not even 30. What? That's not, people have moms when they're 60. Like, so yeah, I understand. It's a really hard thing to lose a parent at an age like that. It's really sad. At four years old, Patriarcha moved with his family to Providence, Rhode Island, and he left school when he was eight years old. That is so young. So when he's eight years old, he just ups and leaves school. Like, no education past the age of eight. Who does that? I guess it could be common back then. But like, even the mafia people that I cover, usually they make it to like, eighth grade, ninth grade. This little boy was eight years old, out there on his own with a job. Like, what? He left school at eight years old so that he could go shine shoes and work as a bellhop. I said a little earlier that I thought that the family had money because Eleutario was registered as a self-employed saloon owner, but no child of a family that has money leaves school at eight years old to be a bellhop. So I rescind that previous comment. It's not true. They, they didn't have money. They were poor. Couldn't be. Now, these jobs of shining shoes and being a bellhop, it's a nice way to make a little money, but... Patriarca quickly realized that there is a much easier way out there. Even at a very young age he realized that carrying out armed robberies and working for liquor smugglers during prohibition, that's where the money is. That's that's how you make it. And that's what he started to do. During his time working during prohibition, Patriarca had been so ruthless as they call him that he had set up hijackings of liquor shipments that he had been paid to protect. So somebody like has a liquor shipment going through and they're like, hey Patriarcha, we're gonna pay you to protect it. And he's like, I bet, gets paid and then turns around and sets up a hijacking of that shipment, which is like, Jesus. During his teenage years, Patriarcha was arrested and he was charged with hijacking, armed robbery, assault, safe cracking, and auto theft. That's some pretty big charges for a teenager. During the 1930s, the Providence Board of Public Safety named Patriarca Public Enemy Number One. He was sentenced to five years in prison for the robbery, but he was paroled in 1938 after he had only served four months. Of a five year sentence in prison. He and his siblings' jobs are listed in the 1930 federal census as Mary, the mother, being a widow and she's listed as the head of household. She lives with her children Elizabeth, who is 25 years old, and she's a bookkeeper. Adelina slash Gertrude at 24 years old, who is a stenographer for a knife manufacturer. Grace, who is 23 years old and a stenographer for a jeweler. I don't know why stenographer, that's a weird thing for multiple people in the family to be. I think it just means a bookkeeper. Raymond at 22 years old, who is an automobile salesman. Sure, Raymond. And Joseph at 20 years old, who is a jewelry store setter, which probably means like he sets the diamonds in the jewelry. Like, you know, there's a ring, it's a diamond. And until you take the diamond and set it into the the ring, it's, but yeah, he's setting jewels into the jewelry. Patriarca was first exposed to the underground life of crime during his time working at the bar that his father ran. When his father died, he moved into, like, more crime than legit work. Because at the beginning, he was pulling heists and stuff, but he was also doing legit work. But when his father died, he was just like, yeah, screw this. I'm not putting anything on the books. I'm not going and working a 9 to 5. That's not gonna happen I'm going all the way criminal. But yeah, so the bar that his dad was running had a lot of criminal underbelly people, and that's where Raymond first came into contact with those kind of people. He was arrested for transporting illegal alcohol during Prohibition, and like every single other mafia member that we see, this arrested a lot to cement his reputation. He did some time, but he did it right. He kept his mouth shut, and he did not say a word about anything. He didn't rat, and he did his time, and he got out, and by the 1930s, he had come to be known as a professional criminal. We know in the Mafia, it sucks to say, but being arrested and doing time is almost a precursor for actually getting a spot in the Mafia because they need to be able to see that you can stand up to the pressure. They need to be able to see that you're gonna be looking down the barrel of a long jail sentence, and you're not gonna crack. You're not gonna rat out your friends. You're not gonna turn around and throw anybody under the bus to get yourself out of trouble. And once you do that, and you prove that you're gonna keep your mouth shut, that does a lot for your reputation he was later sentenced to a year and a day for transporting a female over state lines for purposes of prostitution so he was a pimp i've explained this before but the reason that people are given sentences of a year and a day is to move them from jail to prison if you get anything under a year you go to jail but as soon as you're sentenced to anything over one year and one day. So, like, if you get sentenced to one year, you get sent to jail. If you get sentenced to a year and a day, you go to prison. Like, people in New York, it's the difference between going to Yat and going to Rikers. It's a, it's a big difference. Or going upstate. Like, a lot of people that go to prison, they go upstate. And those places are no freaking joke. So that's why, like, it seems like a random number, like, why would you sentence them to a year and a date? That's why. They want them to go to prison. They don't want them to go to jail. One year later, he was charged with armed robbery of a bank. Conveniently after this arrest, witnesses refused to identify him, so he ended up not going to jail for this. He was totally not guilty, right? Like, he- there's no way he did that crime. There's no way it was just witnesses that were scared to testify against him. No way. No, he didn't do it. Patriarca was officially inducted as a made man into La Cosa Nostra in 1929. He was a pretty average size dude. He was about 5'7", 150 pounds. He had brown eyes, brown hair, medium build. There really wasn't anything physically that stood out about him or made him any different than the person standing next to him. I'm 5'8", so the fact that I would be taller than this man, like, it doesn't surprise me, though. I'm taller than every guy that I'm attracted to, unfortunately. It's not like I, like, have a thing for shorter people, but I think I have a thing for guys that have, like, a short man syndrome. You know, like, that that badass, like, yeah, I'm short, but I'll beat you up kind of (laughs) thing. I can't even tell you how many guys I've dated that are shorter than me. It's crazy. On February 12th, 1938, Patriarca robbed the Wellbank Jewelry Company in Brookline. This robbery yielded a whopping $12,000 worth of golden gems, as well as an employee's car. Five days later, Patriarca robbed the United Optical Plant in Webster. After a barking dog alerted police that something was going on, they searched the area and they found Patriarca hiding underneath a park bench. Obviously, he was arrested from there. So that was in February and he stayed in jail until that August when he was found guilty of the Brookline robbery. A second trial took place for the Wall Bank robbery and he was also found guilty of that. He was given a five-year prison sentence in Charlestown State Prison. Daniel Dapper Dan Coakley an attorney in Boston with a pretty long track record of being just this side of corrupt in his dealings to help his clients, he ends up stepping into the picture. Coakley had a pretty long history of fixing situations for anybody with any kind of charges of larceny, theft, prostitution, or fraud. He even ended up pulling off some extortion himself when he ended up blackmailing railroad magnate H.H. H. Honeywell for $150,000 when he got his hands on love letters that he had written and didn't want to go public. So, this man, he's a politician. You expect politicians to be like, squeaky clean, but he's not. No, no, no. <laughs> Even though Coakley had been disbarred in 1936, when he ran for a public seat on the Executive Council, he somehow won the election. During his time on the Executive Council, he regularly wrote pardon requests to Hurley, who signed a large number of them. Like, if he wrote the pardon request, it was probably going to get signed. And because of this, Massachusetts started to become known as a place that would grant clemency to criminals Quite easily. That means that the mafia and any kind of criminal is gonna gravitate towards the area because if they can get off when they get arrested, that's a pretty sweet deal, you know? Then nobody wants to do time. So if they can be in a place where they can commit crimes and then even if they do get arrested, they'll get granted clemency, of course they're gonna go there. Coakley would regularly write up fake pardon petitions for Hurley. Hurley was just all kinds of stupid. He was kind of like a figurehead. After being disbarred, Coakley knew that he would never be able to hold any kind of position of serious power. But Hurley was just so stupid that it was easy for Coakley to actually run the state from the chair next to Hurley's. So, pretty much, he just had Hurley in place as, like, the face of the chair, and then he would just do everything for him. He made all the decisions. He told Hurley what to do, what to sign, what to say. It was just, he he was like a puppet master. Coakley passed along a letter to the governor, Charles Chowderhead Curley, because that was his full name. He was known as Chowderhead because I'm telling you, this man was stupid. He was not smart, so he came to be known as Chowderhead. So Coakley had passed along a letter to him, and he was requesting an appeal for Patriarcha. The appeal request was written in a letter that was written by a Father Fagan. Father Fagan, an Irish priest, wrote in a letter that Patriarcha was a really nice, respectful, Decent young man that was required at home to assist in taking care of his ailing mother Who was withering away in her old Fragile state you have to let this man go free. It should go without saying that Father Fagan doesn't exist that should have been obvious He really didn't even put that much thought or effort into it. I have literally talked about this on this channel before I've talked about Fagin, the character described in Oliver Twist as a receiver of stolen goods, and this Fagin took young boys off the streets and taught them to be pickpockets and fence their stolen goods. So the fact that Coakley used the name Fagin should have raised a million red flags to Hurley, who's supposed to be a politician in his own right. He's supposed to have a tiny bit of common sense. Like, come on, bro. He also attached letters from two other priests. The first, Father Garneri was actually Reverend Philip Guarino who, when asked later, said that he had never heard of Ray Patriarca and he did not authorize his signature on any sort of documentation supporting him. The second, Father Sixtus Brambilla, had been tricked into signing the petition for him. He said that he did it as a favor for a donor, who had told him that Patriarco was a real stand-up guy that was behind bars for minor juvenile delinquencies. So, like, he didn't even do anything that bad, bro. He doesn't deserve to be in jail. Like, he smoked a doobie on the side of the road. It's not even that big of a deal. Obviously, that's not the case. He robbed two banks at G.U.N. point. Like, that's not the case but he goes and he tells him this and they're like at an event and this is like really long ago so it's not like this guy had a chance to like go research or anything so he believes him you're right nobody deserves to be sitting in jail for a long period of time for minor juvenile offenses i'll go ahead and sign now hurley being the very very stupid man that he is assumes that this letter is legit and he pardons Patriarca and Patriarca walked away a free man. After the pardon was granted, the Pardon and Parole Commission led an investigation and they eventually passed it along to the Massachusetts state legislator after Patriarca had served only 84 days in prison out of this five-year sentence. The letter itself did a lot. It helped Patriarca. To the public, This letter seems to back Patriarch up and shows that he has massive strength in politics. A mobster who has a long history of committing all sorts of crimes, sitting in jail for two armed robberies, has a priest with some serious credentials writing letters on his behalf, and politicians listened? Holy moly, that is some serious clout. The letter also really messed with Coakley's career. Like, it was done. (laughs) It did eventually come out that this letter and the man who had written it was a complete fraud, completely made up, and it cost Coakley any credibility that he had ever had. He was done. After it was revealed that Coakley had done the conning and Hurley had fallen for the con, and let a dangerous criminal back out into society without serving his sentence, Coakley was barred from the House floor, and he was also impeached from his position. He was found guilty on 9 of 14 counts brought against him. The Senate voted to remove him from office, and they would have disbarred him, but he had already been disbarred before he even came into this position. So, it's not like they could take his license to practice law, but they did bar him from ever seeking any political office again in the future. Like, you're done, you can never be elected to do anything again. Like you can't even be elected to run a garbage company. Nothing. Anything that requires you being elected, you are out of the race for. He never did any jail time but he did live a pretty sad life from then on out, like, it's, it's sad. He would sue people over the slightest thing, so that he could go to court and represent himself. It was clear that he really just, like, missed being a lawyer, and if that meant continually suing people so that he could represent himself, since he was never allowed to represent anybody else ever again, that's what he was willing to do and that's what he did. As far as Patriarcha goes, it was revealed that he didn't even take care of his mother. His brother Joseph did that, so every single detail in that letter was just a complete fallacy. He was a cocky little thing too. He didn't even give the customary thank you to two men who had literally just given up their entire careers to get this guy free. And he didn't even say thank you. He was like, (laughs) and just like walked away, like bro, they just gave up everything for you. And he didn't care. On February 2nd, 1939, Raymond Patriarca married Helen Mandela. Helen was born on March 2nd, 1909, and she was the daughter of Vincent Mandela and Josephine Mercurio Mandela. She grew up in Worcester with her father, who was a fruit dealer in a grocery store, and he had immigrated to America from Italy in 1990, and her mother, a stay-at-home mom who had immigrated in 1996, also from Italy. She had a bunch of brothers and sisters. When she was born, she had five siblings. Joseph, who was 10 years old, Matthew, who was 9, Rose, who was 8, Anthony, who was 4, and Mary, who was 2. So her parents were... After Helen was born, the family later added Albert when she was two, Paul when she was four, and Florence when she was nine. Very very happy parents. Joseph grew up to be a construction laborer. Anthony got married to wife Mary, and they had seven children together. He became a molder and a foundry. I have no idea what that means, but that's what he was. Helen became a nurse for a private family. Albert became a vulcanizer at a tire shop, and Paul became a musician in an orchestra, which I think is super cool. I have a cousin that does that. He does the big bass, and he's amazing. Like, he's done professional work. I've come to see him at like these super impressive operas. He is out of this world amazing. So, I love to see that kind of stuff. I wish I had a talent. Like, I am literally good at nothing. I'm one of those people that's like, okay at everything, but I have no talent. I can't sing. I can't dance. I can't play a sport. I can't do anything. So I love to see people who can, you know, it's awesome. The couple got married and continued living with Raymond's mom, Mary. Mary owned her home outright, which was worth $8,000 at the time. The home at 161 and a half Atwell's, in Providence, Rhode Island, 02903 is now valued at $260,700. So that was a very nice investment. In the early 1940s, Patriarca took over the Mafia family in the area. There were two families, one in Providence, Rhode Island, and one in Boston, Massachusetts. While Patriarca wasn't the boss, he did take on a pretty serious role of power over the Providence family and it was pretty clear that he was going to be tapped to be the leader in the future. The local mob ran widespread gambling operations. They teamed up with other mafias, and they pretty much introduced organized crime into the area in New England where he was operating. Even though he had a pretty ruthless reputation for violent behavior, he had often served as a mediator in gang wars elsewhere in the country. On February 24th, 1945, Raymond and Helen welcomed their first and only child, Raymond Patriarca Jr., which is wild. Like, there had to be something going on there some type of infertility, or I don't know, because these families, they always have seven, eight, nine, ten kids. Like, it is so rare to see a family with only one kid. My mother had eight siblings. So, there's a lot of them, and it's pretty normal because Italians are always Catholic. Like, I know that's a super generalized, bleh, bleh, bleh. okay, but it's true. They're Catholic. And you know what Catholics don't believe in? Birth control. You know what Catholics do believe in? Spreading the word of God. So they have more children, so that God has more followers. And you always see these gigantic Italian families. It's just the way it is. My dad, there's only five of them, but I'm an only child. Sadly, on August 16, 1945, Raymond's mother, Mary Jane, died at 67 years old in Providence, Rhode Island. During the 1940s, Patriarcha continued to rise in power. He had become known For his love of stealing so like he got a kick out of it he was like I know I can't remember what other mafia member it was but I covered someone that was just like he would go out with his people on like robberies when he didn't need to he's like the boss of the family he has a whole gaggle of people that are gonna do robberies for him and he's like "Uh, no I'm coming with you that's too much fun and he ran a lot of the crime that he committed out of the coin omatic building in Providence's Italian section Even though he continually told people that he was a legit businessman, he was running a loan sharking operation, gambling, pornography, and human trafficking out of this building. He also did some legit work as well. He had real estate investments from Las Vegas to Florida. He had land all over the place. This man was rich, rich, okay? In 1950, mobster Philip Brucola booked it out of the U.S because the government was coming after him for tax evasion, which we all know is just the government's way of taking out Mafia members who they don't have enough evidence against to get them in jail for actual crimes that they committed. After Brocolo was gone, Patriarca took over control of all of the criminal dealings that he had going on. So it was nice to inherit a pretty big chunk of crime for absolutely nothing. Brocola was the boss of Providence, Rhode Island and Boston, Massachusetts families. They had kind of merged into one entity under Brocola. So Patriarca taking control of what Brocola had built is like, it's huge. It's like taking over the Gambino family after Gambino died. Like he inherited an entire family. It's like the New England family. And this wasn't really just out of nowhere either. Before deciding to flee the United States, Brocola had a party to celebrate his retirement as boss of the family, as well as Patriarca's ascension to the top. So it's not like Patriarca came out of nowhere and like, oh, Brocola got in trouble and I gotta find someone quick. No, like he was a ready tap for the position. Everybody knew he was gonna be taking over as boss. It just moved the timetable up a little bit when he had to flee. His position as boss of the family was cemented after the New York Commission spoke and agreed to recognize Patriarca as the boss of the family, so he really did things by the book. That's a really great thing to see when you have men like Galante running around and saying they're the boss and taking people out to try to take the position of boss, but never actually getting the nod from the commission to be the boss. Throughout his time as boss of the family, for the most part, if he was in Providence, his underboss was in Boston and vice versa. There's always one of them in one of the locations. Patriarca adopted a new nickname, Il Patrone, a nickname that actually meant the owner. In New York, there is multiple mob bosses, but Patriarca took on the nickname because he is the boss of the family for a long time. While there's five mob bosses at any given time in New York, and then you go across the river and you find a few more in Jersey, Patriarca owns all of Rhode Island and Massachusetts, so it's pretty easy to call him the boss. In 1956, Patriarca made drastic changes to the family, the biggest being that he moved the base of operations to Providence, Rhode Island, where he had grown up. He ran his crime family from the National Cigarette Service Company and Coinomatic Distributors, a vending machine and pinball machine business on Atwells Avenue in Federal Hill neighborhood of Providence. These were both companies that he owned and operated, so it was easy to set up an office for these companies, and then that office kind of became the headquarters for the entire mafia family. During this time, every single bit of illegal business like, you know, your run-of-the-mill card games, robberies, human trafficking, prostitution, gun running, numbers games, all of that. Every single thing that happened anywhere near Providence paid a kickback to Patriarcha. His underboss Enrico Tamaleo had previously worked for the Bonanno family now anybody coming from a background with the New York families Automatically has a lot of clout put on them because the New York families That's the original like that's the OGs. They're the ones with the most power so you take someone from Providence or Boston and if you put a New York Mafia member into that mix the New York Mafia member is just automatically going to have a leg up. But that also put Patriarca on really good terms with a lot of the New York bosses, most notably Frank Costello, who was running the Luciano family at the time. I've done a video about Costello, I'll link it in the description, so if you're interested, Costello has one of the most interesting stories out of any gangster ever. Like, he was one of those people that... I did a video on him, just because his name came up in every single video that I made, so I had to give him his own video. That man, I would say, after Luciano, he lived one of the most interesting lives there was to live. Like, Luciano definitely number one, Frank Costello number two. So if you're interested, go check out that video, because it's an interesting one. Costello respected Patriarca, and so did the Genovese family. Tamaleo was known as the referee. After a while, Patriarcha came to be known as a bit of a loose cannon. He would do cruel things for no reason, and he wouldn't care how it affected other human beings. Tamaleo would handle him with kid gloves, and he would just kind of try to mitigate the wreckage that was going on around him. I'm finding stories about Patriarcha, but I can't find any actual info or like anything to back up these stories. They're just like mentioned as stories. I don't see any newspaper articles, I don't see anything like concrete that tells that this definitely actually happened. So I don't really want to tell it as a fact, because I feel like if this was a real situation, we would know names. I see a story about a man that Patriarca ordered to kill his own son. And when the man was ordered to do that, he fell to his knees crying. And he begged to not have to do that. And Patriarca exiled him from La Cosa Nostra. Apparently, this all happened because the son had cost Patriarca money in a crime arrangement. I don't really believe that this happened, though, because... I feel like this is one of those things that is just straight up made up to try to, like, make somebody's reputation a lot scarier than it is because it doesn't make sense. Why would the man that was ordered to kill his kid not be named? How have we not heard about this? How is it not Googleable? who this man is? Like, I cannot for the life of me find out who this man that was ordered to kill his son is that's some serious shit like to be told to kill your son and then to be exiled from La Cosa Nostra because you won't do it I feel like we would know that name I feel like it would be somewhere it would be discoverable but who the hell am I like I don't who I'm nobody so you know maybe it is real and they just did a really good job of hiding that big of a story I don't know According to the story, Patriarcha planned to have the father offed for not agreeing to kill his son, but Tamaleo talked him into just ousting him from the family. So while we're on the topic of ruthless stuff that Patriarcha did, which again I don't see any concrete evidence that this happened, so I'm not telling it as a story that happened. I'm telling it as something that's out there about him, because I don't believe that it happened, but take it at face value. Could have happened, I guess. I especially don't believe this because it's mentioned in multiple places that Patriarca was brought in to mitigate gang wars in other areas. So if he is so crazy and so out of his gourd Why would anybody trust him to handle issues that are going on in other areas? Like, you can't even handle yourself and your own family, you're out of your mind. Why would they say, oh yeah, come help mitigate this issue in New York? No, that's not something you do to somebody that's so crazy that he's ordering someone to kill his son, no. Anyways, while we're on that subject, let's talk about the Irish mob wars going on in the area. The Patriarcha family is the Italian Mafia family in all of New England, but the Italian Mafia is not the only criminal enterprise in the area. There is also two, not one, but two Irish Mafias in the area as well. One is the Winter Hill Gang, and the other is the McLaughlin Gang. The Winter Hill Gang was led by Irish gangster named James Buddy McLean, and the McLaughlin Gang was led by Bernie McLaughlin. They had kind of, like, coexisted for a really long time. They had no issues at all. Everything is copacetic. They don't pay each other, but they don't step on each other's toes. They don't step on each other's territories. They just do their own things in their own areas, and peace is wide, you know? This is until Labor Day weekend of 1961 let me just say right now it is all over a female it's always over a female it's always about the girl and I know as a girl that sounds ridiculous for me to say but it's true it's always about a girl like come on bro so it's Labor Day weekend there's a party and everyone who's anybody is going everyone's chilling. times are great everybody's kicking back having a great time Nothing can go wrong, right? So they're at this party, and George McLaughlin starts coming on to this girl. She is super hot, he wants her, she turns him down, but he doesn't take no for an answer, and he just keeps on keeping on. She says, like, hey, I have a boyfriend, leave me alone. And he's like, uh, I don't care, I'm way cooler than your boyfriend, and you should come be with me instead. Well, it turns out this super hot chick is the girlfriend of Alexander Petricone. Petricone is a member of the Winter Hill Gang, and his girlfriend comes up to him, and she's like, bro, this dude will just not leave me alone. He will not stop coming on to me. He will not take no for an answer, and I I don't know what to do. And he is like, uh, are you joking? Who is he? Point me in his direction. It is on. She points out McLaughlin and it's just over. Petricone and his friends get a hold of McLaughlin and they beat the absolute... They beat this boy. Holy, oh, they beat this boy. I'm talking he's unconscious. They thought that he was no longer here with us. And they kind of panic, but they realize that he's breathing, so they drop him off in front of a hospital. So they, they didn't go all the way with it, but this dude caught the beating of a lifetime. So they beat this dude up, but whatever, they keep it moving, and Bernie McLaughlin gets word that his brother got his ass beat, and he's in the hospital. He goes to the Winter Hill Gang, and he's like, yeah, you knew damn well that that was my brother, and you still beat him up. I demand that you hand over the dudes that laid hands on my brother. McLean, the leader of the Winter Hill Gang, is like, yeah, that's not gonna happen. He got his ass beat because he deserved to get his ass beat. You don't hit on a member's girlfriend. He did. He got his ass beat. Move on or do something about it. McLaughlin is like, oh, okay. Okay. So it's like that. Okay, cool. Watch this. McLaughlin puts together a boom boom and he puts it in McLean's wife's car. You want to mess with my family, I will mess with your family. Say goodbye to your wife. Which, if you ask me, is just like a crazy escalation from your brother getting beat up for hitting on a girl. But, you know, like that's just me. But it just seems like that escalated way too quickly. So they put the boom boom in the wife's car, but it doesn't go off. Dogs barking in the area in the middle of the night made the wife wake up and look out the window to see what was going on, and she clearly sees three dudes messing with her car. So McLean gets up, he puts his pants on, and he sneaks out with a pew-pew, and he fires at the three dudes, and the three dudes fire back. Nobody ends up dying, but the message that they were trying to off the wife? It's pretty clear. He even found the five sticks of dynamite that they had left behind taped to the ignition switch of his wife's car. So it's clear what was going on, what they were trying to do. Now, McLean is pissed. He is. He's mad. It is all-out war now. You don't come after somebody's wife. And now, the Winter Hill Gang is out for blood. He- there- It it is on. McLean goes and finds McLaughlin... He finds him coming out of a bar, like, you know, just walking out of a bar, and he pew-pews him right in the head in broad daylight. And obviously, McLaughlin does not survive. This happened in front of, like, a hundred witnesses. It was on a public sidewalk in the middle of the day, literally next door to a police station. The man literally ran out of Fs to give. He did not care anymore. Of course, when it came time for trial, nobody saw anything and he walked. But he still did end up being in jail because they just kept him there since he already had pending charges. They knew that he was the one that did it, but they couldn't prove it, so they couldn't put him in jail for it. But since he already had other charges, they kept him in jail, kind of to mitigate the violence on the streets. Petra was also in jail, and he was in jail for the same stuff. So these other charges were what the police used to just keep them off the streets. Petra Cohn had the same issue that McLean had. The McLaughlin gang had tried to go after his wife as well and it was the last straw for his wife. Even though he caught it and she wasn't hurt, she divorced him. This is just like crazy pants. This is the biggest thing to happen in the Irish mob in a really long time. Imagine hearing that Vito Genovese walked up and pew-pewed Al Capone in the head in, in broad daylight on a sidewalk. Like it's a really big deal and the McLaughlin gang just lost their boss obviously now it is all out war it is going to the mattresses everything is serious people are going to lose their lives this is this is on in the time that follows obviously other mafia bosses get involved people are dying on the streets every criminal syndicate in the area is going to get involved because this affects money this affects their business. When when people are dying, like, that's not a good thing for them. Patriarca usually used the Irish Mafia for his dealings, and he did it pretty often. If he needed somebody beat up, but he didn't want his own family entwined in it, he just rang up the Irish Mafia, and they would do it for him, as long as he threw him a couple of bucks. Anjulo, a man that I have seen listed as the underboss multiple times, I don't know why, though, because he's not the underboss, but I've seen him mentioned as the underboss, like, a lot of times, but Tamaleo is the underboss, so I don't really know what that is, but he has a pretty high position of power in the family, and he runs gambling operations in the North End, and he often brushed elbows with the Irish Mafia. Each of the two Irish gangs paid the Patriarch Family a cut for the criminal enterprises that they ran in the area because... That's just what you do. You pay the Italian mafia or, you know, your people start not waking up in the morning. So it's just easier, way easier to make payments to them. Throughout this Irish war, dozens of people didn't make it through and there was constantly back and forth shootouts between the two gangs. With this kind of killing, Patriarca started to get worried. This is is never good for business, it's having a serious impact on his ability to earn. Too many people are going into hiding, not waking up in the morning, and he's making less money because of it, and that's something that's going to get him involved. The FBI caught Patriarca on tape, saying, if these killings don't stop, I'll declare martial law. Patriarca went to Tamaleo, his actual underboss, and he tells him to call a peace conference. When Tamaleo called it, he had powerful people on either side of the Irish Mafia War, and he tells them, like, hey, we're gonna work this out, show up at this time, at this place, all come and let's figure this out. Two members of the McLaughlin side, Punchy and Georgie McLaughlin, the one that started this whole mess in the first place, showed up with pew-pews in a brown paper bag. Like who shows up to peace talks with a weapon? Come on. It's like this dumbass enjoys war. He likes it. He doesn't want to call peace. Tamaleo, at that point, gave up. He flips out on the McLaughlins, and he's like, you know what? Get the hell out of here. Go die amongst yourselves for all I care. I'm done. You're done. This meeting is done. Goodbye. So Tamaleo goes back to Patriarcha, and he's like, dude, there is going to be no peace here. It's not going to happen. The McLaughlins are just looking to kill. That's all they want to do. They don't want peace. Unfortunately, you're going to have to pick a side. So Patriarcha did, and he chose the McLean side, which is the Winter Hell Gang. It didn't take long before they both took each other out. All of the leaders, including McLean, caught bullets to the back of the head. The war petered out after a while and it looks like the McLaughlin gang just ceased to exist anymore. The Winter Hill gang survived and the McLaughlin gang came to an end when the McLaughlins just all tied. But Patriarcha's role in ending the war by taking out almost every single member of the entire gang had gained him a lot of respect in the global La Cosa Nostra empire. The Genovese family had outsourced some work to them, so much so that, at one point, Patriarca sent one of his top hitmen to the Genovese family to help with the situation that was going on. And it's pretty huge that they acknowledged him as the boss of the area, because New York could've easily just taken control of that entire area for themselves and be able to keep all the profit for themselves. But they also knew that it would bring a lot of headache, so they just acknowledged Patriarcha as the boss, and it kept the family working with him rather than them being greedy and taking all the profits for themselves. They acknowledged Patriarcha, and they didn't have the money, but they also didn't have the headache. They didn't want to live in Rhode Island, and they didn't ever try to take the power for themselves. In 1957, Patriarca, being a powerful boss in the La Cosa Nostra, obviously he attended the Appalachian meeting. When the meeting was raided, Patriarca was detained along with Genovese, Gambino, Profaci, all the powerful members of the mafia were there and they were all identified and arrested. In the late 1950s he began a close association with Gennaro Angulo, a small-time runner for Boston bookies who was reportedly being shaken down by other mobsters. Angulo approached Patriarca and offered him $50,000 promising the mob chief an additional $100,000 annually from bookmaking proceeds in Boston, in exchange for status as a made man, even though he had never killed anybody. And he promised to keep money flowing into Patriarca's pockets. This arrangement elevated Angelo's status, and it worked. Other mobsters kept their hands off Angelo because he was under Patriarcha's protection and he was a made man. There's a huge problem with that though. Selling membership into La Cosa Nostra was one of the huge reasons that the books got entirely locked down by Gambino for a long period of time. There was rumors that Anastasia was selling memberships. And this isn't just a game out here. You can't just sell memberships. You're supposed to put the work in, put years in, put bodies down to become a made member. You aren't supposed to be able to buy your way in. This isn't like... A yacht club. You have to be able to trust people and the only way that you can trust people is if you take years and years and years and learn who they are. Because I hate to say it, but if anybody could pay and become a member of La Cosa Nostra, how easy is it for the FBI to come up with some money and get one of their people in? I talked about this in my Joseph Gallo video, so I'll link that below if you're interested, but I do talk about this on that video as well. So if you want to know, like, all of what goes into what I'm about to say, go check out my Joseph Gallo video. But let's do a quick recap so we can see what a huge part of history that Patriarcha participated in. Joseph Gallo was imprisoned in November of 1961 for conspiracy and extortion. This stemmed from him trying to extort money from a businessman, and he had refused to say one word in his defense throughout the entire trial. The only words that he spoke at his trial was when he referred to the ADA as "you dirty rats. After a three day trial, the jury found him guilty and he was sentenced to 7 to 14 years in prison at Green Haven Correctional Facility. He would later transfer to Attica Correctional Facility, then to Auburn Correctional Facility. When he got out of jail on April 11, 1971, he picked back up on a feud that had been going on for years. Joe Perfacci had died during his time in jail, but the Gallo Wars had still continued. Again, if you're interested in the entire story, go check out my Joe Gallo video, and again, I'll link it in the description. So because the Gallo Wars had continued, but Joe Gallo was in prison, the other Gallo brothers had sat down with Raymond Patriarca in 1963 to negotiate a peace agreement with the Magliocho persico faction that they were at war with. The peace agreement that Patriarca had brokered put an end to the Endless fighting that had been going on between the two factions, and it seemed like peace was finally achieved after so long of fighting. Because nobody really wants to be at war. Like, being at war is the worst situation possible. You do what you have to do. If you have to go to war, you go to war. But nobody wants that. Do you know how much money you lose by your people being on the mattresses and underground? It's not a profitable thing. Nobody wants to be at war. The only problem is crazy Joe Gallo. When he got out of jail, he turns around and he's like, uh, yeah, um, I was in jail when you guys made this little peace agreement, but I'm not following that peace agreement because I had nothing to do with negotiating it or forming it. So it is on, bitches. I'm coming for you. Joseph Colombo the new leader of the Colombo family, along with Joseph Iacovelli, had tried to sit down with Joe Gallo to renegotiate the already settled dispute. Because remember, Raymond Patriarca had already worked all of this out. He created peace between the families in 1963. Like, this has been said and done. So, years later, when Gallo gets out of jail in 1971, So that's eight years later, he's now like, oh yeah, no, uh, I really actually want to be at war. And Patriarcha's sitting there like, what? I already fixed this. What are you talking about? We don't want to do this again. Who wants to be at war? Well, the answer to that is Joe Gallo. Joe Gallo wants to be at war. So... Joseph Colombo and Joseph Iacovelli offer Gallo a thousand dollars to abide by the peace treaty that Patriarca had ironed out. Gallo laughs at them. He's like, a thousand dollars? Are you out of your gosh darn minds? Absolutely not. Throw me a hundred thousand dollars and we can talk or I'm still coming for you. Joseph Colombo straight-up laughs at him. He's like, yeah, that's definitely not gonna happen. I am not giving you $100,000 so that you won't re-resurrect a war that has been gone for eight years. You are out of your gourd. It's not gonna happen. On June 28th, 1971, Joseph Colombo took the stage at the second Italian Unity Day rally, a parade that he held once a year in Columbus Circle in Manhattan. Thousands of people had gathered around to hear him talk, including his entire family. While he was giving the speech, a man that Joseph Gallo had hired shot him three times, one of those three bullets catching him in the head. He didn't die right away, but he was paralyzed for the rest of his life. This event is 100% what led to Joe Gallo's death. You can see it in the way that he was killed. He was killed sitting at a table with his friends and family, and this is something that never, never happens. You always see mafia guys getting taken out at barber shops, at restaurants where they're sitting with friends, walking out of their apartment, whatever. You never see them with their family. The fact that these shooters attacked him while he was sitting with his wife and kids and with Jerry Orbach, yes, that Jerry Orbach, the one from Law and & Order, and a few other friends, it shows that it was a retaliation for the Colombo shooting where he was shot in front of his entire family. So they kind of turned around and they're like, okay, you're going to do this to Columbo, something that is not done, like it's against... The moral rules of this whole thing, we're not gonna worry about the fact that you're with your whole family. Gallo even flipped the table that he was sitting at and walked out of the door while he was being shot at so that he could divert the bullets and make sure that they wouldn't go towards his family. Interestingly enough, Jerry Orbach has stayed silent to this day about who actually shot Joe Gallo. He claims he didn't see it, but let's be realistic here. Of course he saw it. He was sitting right next to him, but he shut his mouth and he has never to this day opened it. And I absolutely love the irony of Orbach abiding by a code of silence for the mafia and then going on TV and playing a well respected police officer that tells other people to confess to the cops. On July 13th, 1966, Willie Marfeo was killed in a telephone booth in the Federal Hill section of Providence. His killing has never been solved. According to the FBI, Patriarca killed Willie because he was running an unsanctioned dice game and an illegal gambling operation, but not kicking up to Patriarca. According to the illegal tap that the police had placed in his business, we'll talk about that later, but according to this tap that they had, He had wanted him dead since 1964, but Tamaleo, I think I was mispronouncing that before. His name is Tamaleo. I think that's how it's pronounced. I was mispronouncing it saying Tamaleo. It's Tamaleo. But Tamaleo wouldn't let him kill him because he had some tax issues going on. In other words, like, hey, I have enough stuff going on. Don't kill him. Don't bring more heat on us. Let me work my tax stuff out before you do any crazy stuff. So Patriarca wanted this guy dead for a year, he didn't move forward with it, he didn't do anything about it, but finally, when Tamalio's trial was up, he took action. Honestly, it sounds like there was a lot more that went into this, to be honest, but I really couldn't care less. (laughs) Why Willie Marfeo died. And it's probably one of the least important parts of this story, which is like, you won't find information on this. By February of 1961, Patriarcha was under scrutiny by Robert Kennedy, the scumbag that he was, who targeted Patriarcha and pretty much anybody that was involved in La Cosa Nostra so that he could round them up for the McClellan commission trials. That same year, FBI director J. Edgar Hoover named Patriarcha as Boston's top hoodlum. I love these little like witty names that they give people. Boston's top hoodlum. Like, ooh, you're so bad. Helen, Patriarca's wife, passed away on September 7th, 1965. She died at 56 years old, and she was buried in the Gates of Heaven Cemetery in East Providence, Rhode Island. Remember we talked about that, how there's so many people buried at this place? She's another one. So, let's talk about that illegal tap that goes on. The FBI gets a bright idea to plant a listening device at the coin and National Cigarette Service offices. Pretty much the point is that they're hoping to catch the Patriarca family up in some shit with this tap. And they do. They get all sorts of intel. But here's the problem. They never got a warrant for these taps. They never got any permission to place these listening devices. And when they brought them to a judge, they were ruled inadmissible. In July of 1965, the FBI stopped the electric monitoring of Patriarcha's office under orders from the United States President Lyndon B. Johnson, who told the public that he was opposed to obtaining evidence through electronic eavesdropping, especially illegal eavesdropping. Because these wires were found to be illegal, Newspapers were ordered not to print any information the FBI released to them about the Patriarcha family and it was some juicy shit. See, the FBI loves to do this. They plant illegal bugs, they spend years of their lives and hundreds of thousands of millions of dollars of taxpayer money illegally listening in on places, and when they bring it to a judge, and the judge is like, hey, that's illegal, you can't do that, they throw a temper tantrum, and instead of just taking the L, they release every minute of the illegal wiretap to the media, just so that they don't feel like they wasted the time, and wasted everybody else's time, and the taxpayer's time, and everybody's time, like they actually did. When Providence Journal Bulletin decided that they were going to put it in the paper anyway, a federal judge stepped in and ordered them not to. They did it anyway. The judge slammed the paper with a $100,000 fine and threw the executive editor, Charles McHouser, in jail. Which, go freaking judge. Like, that is so awesome. I'm so proud of that dude. Finally, somebody in the government looking out for the actual citizens like they're supposed to do. Believe it or not, this all went down in 2016. That was six years ago. All this shit happened so long ago, but his son took over running the family and that man was pissed when a Freedom of Information Act request had allowed the illegal tapes to end up in the Boston Globe's hand and he sued and it turned into like this whole big thing. You want to know what the main thing that the papers wanted to print? Is it the countless murders that must have been discussed on those tapes? No. Is it the millions of dollars that they made through illegal and nefarious methods? No. They wanted to discuss a quote that Raymond Sr. had said to Raymond Jr. in the privacy of his own office when the two men were having a conversation alone, father to son. Apparently Sr. had told Jr. to go out and marry himself a nice Italian girl. According to him, Italian girls will stand by you when you're in trouble and won't call the police when you slap her in the mouth, which, like, fair. (laughs) I don't understand what the big problem is with that. Like, it's true. But we're in 2016, and politically correct feminists attacked, and suddenly Patriarcha Jr. is out there on Federal Hill defending himself about how my father never told me about hitting women and blah, blah, blah. Shut up. It's true. An Italian girl won't call the cops on you. She might put two in your dome. (laughs) If you don't think so, go check out The Sopranos when Tony's sister gets smacked in the mouth. But she ain't calling the cops. And the fact that anybody has an issue with that fact, and the fact that his father told that to his son, this true piece of information, is just like a horrible summary of today's modern day versus the good old days. And this is all summed up in one story stupid stupid story now patriarcha junior went to jail in 1992 and when he got out he went into retirement and avoided organized crime wink wink what me me accuse a man of still being in the mafia me never mm no way he definitely got out of jail and walked a straight and narrow. I 100% believe him. Totally. No, officer, I have not heard anything. I don't believe anything. It's crazy. Actually, you know what? Like, what mafia? I have never heard of the mafia before. What are you talking about? What a good, upstanding citizen Patriarca Jr. probably is. I'm just so proud of him. Anyways, Let's talk about how some illegal wiretaps led to his dad going to prison back in 1965, shall we? In 1967, Joseph the Animal Baron Barbosa's testimony put Patriarca and Enrico Temaleo, longtime underboss, behind bars for 10 years on a conspiracy to murder charge in connection with the slaying of Providence bookmaker Willie Marfeo, the non-important situation I told you about earlier. He was also arrested with Robert Fairbrother, Maurice Lerner, John Rossi, and Rudolph Schiara. Rossi and Fairbrother received a hung jury for their part in the double murder, and Sciara and Patriarca received a hung jury verdict on their charges of being accessories before the facts. Before we move on from this, I do want to talk a little bit about what led to Barboza snitching honestly at first I was like super pumped to hear this because I'm like oh my god the guy that did the Appalachian meetings is a freaking snitch like what <sighs> but no Joseph Barbosa the snitch and Joseph Barbera the housekeeper of the Appalachian meeting are not one and the same still though I want to know why 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 did he snitch why did he go through an entire life of crime to end up on a witness stand. Let's go over Joseph Barbosa real quick and find out. Joseph the animal baron Barbosa was born in New England in New Bedford, Massachusetts, to Portuguese immigrant parents. He had two brothers and a sister, and he spoke fluent Portuguese, Italian, Spanish, and English. That freaking blows me away. Imagine knowing even two languages fluently. Us white girls that grew up in homes without our grandmothers and struggled to get through ninth grade Spanish class can't even imagine. This man knew four languages fluently. Like that's impressive, that's really impressive. (laughs) He married a Jewish woman and had two kids, one son and one daughter. He tried to be a professional boxer and throughout his boxing career he had won 8 out of 11 matches. He actually had a shot at a professional boxing career. Five of those wins were KOs. There really isn't any reason that he didn't go pro. I guess he just liked the life of crime more. A lot like the Kray twins from last week, this man was not a good prisoner. When he was sent there in 1950, he led what ended up being the largest prison break in that prison's history, when he and a few friends drank, did drugs, beat up drought, beat up guards, took two cars and bucked it. He terrorized the streets and civilians while he was out, and he was arrested less than 24 hours later. But think of the freaking street cred. A prison break, and a prison break of that magnitude will get you. As much as he wanted to be a member of La Cosa Nostra, I think he felt it in his bones that as much as he wanted it, he couldn't change the fact that he wasn't Italian. He was all kinds of tied up with the Patriarcha family. He ran crimes for them. He pulled off more contract killings than pretty much anybody else in that era in service of the Patriarca family. And he had a huge hand in winning the Irish Wars. He took out Edward McLaughlin. But see, here's where he messed up. He decided to go into a bar that had already been paying Anjulo for protection, and he demanded that he be paid as well. You do not mess with another mobster's territory. Like, come on, bro. That is page one in the rulebook. That shit will get you killed even if you are a made man in La Cosa Nostra. But to be someone that just pulls off crimes for them and doesn't even qualify to be a member that that right there it's a death sentence when he was arrested with two other dudes in 1966 for a weapons charge he found out that it was the mafia that had originally tipped off the cops that he had the weapon and where he was gonna be so that they could pull him over and arrest him and he sat in jail because he couldn't afford his bail and when that happened he knew that like okay this falling out is serious like They really want nothing to do with me anymore." It got even more dangerous on the streets for him when he started to see all of his really good friends die around him. With his clear excommunication from the Mafia, a nice little five year jail sentence that he was handed for the weapons charge, and all of his friends dropping dead around him, even though it was another gang that had killed his friends, and the Mafia killed that dude that killed his friends when you have that kind of serious stuff going on around you and you have two feds in your ear talking about how the mafia wants you dead and your only option is to tattle to the piggies, sometimes you give in to your survival instincts. That is why you would never so much as be considered for membership, bitch. He testified against Patriarca and other high-ranking members of the family so that he could get himself out of a five-year jail sentence. Five years! Years and years later, members of the jury on some of these trials had confessed that nobody believed Barboza at all. So he literally became a snitch for no reason. They had all known about these guys and how they were mafia members and how they probably had committed some of these crimes. But that's why Patriarca only got 10 years on a triple homicide case. And the rest of the men on the trial got baby sentences because nobody believed a word that came out of Barbosa's mouth. After testifying, and the fact that he did testify making the front page of the newspaper... He wrote into the news saying that he just wanted to be left alone. Oh, poor baby, like you snitched and now they're bothering you. He went into WITPRO, and after he went into WITPRO, his lawyer's leg had been blown off when he started his car and a boom boom had been placed in it. Later on, a crooked FBI agent got him to provide false testimony that would put away four high-ranking mafia members, including Tamalio, for murder. Both men died in prison for the one murder that they had absolutely nothing to do with. When he got out of jail, Barboza tried to live a normal life under an alias in the same freaking city. Come on, bro. You're gonna stay in the same city? Are you kidding? He was killed walking out of his South Boston apartment by Angelo's men with four shotgun blasts to the chest, and good freaking riddance. It's very rare that I say that somebody deserved it, but he deserved it. Patriarca had been sentenced on March 25th, 1968, and received two five-year concurrent sentences and a fine of $10,000. He began his sentence in Atlanta prison. While they had him in jail, they were trying to build a case to keep him in jail for the rest of his life, because he's only in there for 10 years. They had begun trying to build a case against him for his part in the crime of the killing of Anthony Melee. When he was booked, he listed his address as 165 Lancaster Street, Providence, Rhode Island, and he was listed as the owner of a vending machine business, which is the National... Cigarettes and you know, Coinomatic, a real estate business, and Sherwood Manufacturing Company on Eagle Street in Providence. I even know this man's social security number, it's crazy. His net worth at the time was $25,000, and his wife was worth $80,000. I bet you his wife came upon that $80,000 in totally legal ways. Like, there's no way that he took his own assets and put them in her name to protect them when he got arrested. I'm sure that never happens. Like, no, his wife was just a boss and got her hands on all of that money on her own. While he was in jail, Patriarca continued to run the family. At one point, he was even making new members of the family without consulting anyone while sitting in a jail cell. It's a little bit against the rules. The process of making a new made man in La Cosa Nostra family includes passing the new member's name around and seeing if any of the current made men have any issue with it. But just declaring someone as a newly made member, it's not only pissing off his own family, it's pissing off the entire Mafia. After only five years in prison, Patriarca was freed in 1974, and he resumed control of Providence's criminal organization. Law enforcement officials contended that Patriarca controlled a web of illicit activities that spread across New England, including loan sharking, numbers lotteries, trafficking in marijuana and cocaine, and for a time, jukebox vending rackets and smuggling of immigrants, which is human trafficking. He was arrested more than 30 times on charges ranging from bootlegging to conspiracy to murder, and he served several prison sentences. In 1963, Joseph Bellacci, infamous mob rat who I've talked about like a hundred times on this channel, usually about his coining the names of the families, Included patriarca among such figures as Joseph Bonanno, Carlo Gambino, Sam Giancana, and the 12-man syndicate Valachi said controlled all organized crime in America. In 1972, he was taken from the Atlanta Penitentiary, and he was supposed to testify about Frank Sinatra and his now defunct Berkshire Down racetrack near Hancock, Massachusetts. Because what would an episode be without me mentioning Frank Sinatra? His name comes up in everything. Everything. Allegedly, the track was financed by organized crime. No, not Frank Sinatra. I've just done like 80,000 videos of Mafia members and his name has came up in every single one. But no way. Frank Sinatra is so not involved in crime, okay? He was a legend. He was a singer. He was an angel, okay? An angel. Patriarcha said that he had never even met Sinatra. On the stand, Patriarcha said... The only place that I've ever seen him is on television. And when Sinatra was called to testify, he said that he had invested $55,000, but he never knew who the other investors were. Patriarca was asked to testify in 1956 under questioning from then Chief Counsel to the Senate investigation of corruption in the International Brotherhood of Teamsters. What is now known as the McClellan Committee, Robert F. Kennedy slammed Patriarca with questions on Capitol Hill. He questioned where the money came from for Patriarca to start the jukebox business that he owned and operated, which was named the National Cigarette Service, a vending machine business that operated on Federal Hill section of Providence, and we also know that he had the Coinomatic business. While being questioned, Patriarca claimed that he came up with the money to fund this business from money that he had inherited from his mother when she passed away. According to him, his mother had kept cash in a box which had about $80 to $90,000 in the basement of the family home. In 1978, Vincent Teresa, another mafia member, testified that Patriarca was present when the CIA handed out a $4 million contract to the mob with instructions to kill Fidel Castro, which was an approved executive assassination. Teresa claimed that Patriarca had helped to pick a Brookline, Massachusetts convict by the name of Maurice Werner to kill Castro, but the assassination plot was later scrapped. Which, like, oh my god, I absolutely love this. I love conspiracy theories. You know what? Like, I recently stumbled on some juicy shit that legit nobody cares about, and it's driving me crazy. I was watching this old podcast from four years ago, and they were talking about paperwork that had been held off from being released on the JFK assassination until 2021 because Bush Sr. was still alive. Well, he ain't no more, baby, and that shit is wide open now. And guess what the hell I read in FBI documents, like legit FBI documents that are on the FBI website. It is extremely clear that Russia killed JFK. The FBI has hundreds of pages detailing Lee Harvey Oswald's movements at the Soviet embassy in Mexico getting paid off days before he killed JFK. And then they're talking about Jack Ruby days before he killed Oswald. Which, if you're supposed to believe the story that came out to the public, Ruby didn't even plan to kill Oswald. He just killed him in a fit of rage one day when he saw him being escorted by police. Honestly, I think I'm going to do a live to talk to you guys about this craziness because it blows my mind that the FBI released the information to the American public that Russia killed our sitting president. The FBI knows it and nobody did anything about it or cared whatsoever. Like, okay, Daddy Putin, I see you. Like, how does nobody care about this? In 1980, Patriarca was arrested on charges that he ordered the hit in 1965 of Raymond Baby Curcio. Apparently, he ordered Nicholas Palmigiano to do it, and the FBI's solid evidence of that was the fact that Patriarca congratulated him on a job well done after he completed it. Curcio had broken into Patriarca's brother's house and groped a young girl who was asleep in a bed, so he died. Because I'm not mad that that guy died after breaking into someone's house and groping a young girl. Not only someone, but the brother of a mafia boss. Like, you're supposed to be mad that that guy died? Come on. Patriarca had remarried a woman named Rita O'Toole, a former nightclub hostess, and he was living with her in Johnstone, Rhode Island. Patriarca suffered from heart disease and diabetes for many years, and on July 11, 1984, he was rushed from O'Toole's house while he was in the middle of an intimate act with her and was rushed to the Rhode Island hospital, where the 76-year-old died from a massive heart attack. I am so sorry to say this, but ain't that the way that all men wanna go out? I feel like every single man in this world would nod their head yes here. Tell me I'm wrong. Good for Patriarcha, man. I'm, I'm really happy for him. Like, this is the ideal death for any man in the world. Under indictment for two murders at the time of his death, Patriarca's demise left the New England mob split, and everybody was going for a power grab. By the time Patriarca's son, Raymond Patriarca Jr., assumed command, he was now in control of a multi-billion dollar organization. So that is all that I have on this legend. Freeman Patriarcha. Thanks so much for hanging out with me today. I hope that you guys have a wonderful day. Please don't forget to like, share, subscribe, comment, follow, do all the things, and I'll see you next week. Bye!